Welcome to Let's Talk FCA, presented by Kroll and Warren. We are your co-hosts, Jason Crawford and Mono Lombardo, bringing you the latest developments with the False Claims Act. Almost 10 years ago, the FCA was amended to broaden the government's FCA investigative powers by increasing the number of officials within the Justice Department authorized to issue civil investigative demands, or CIDs. This change has had a profound impact on the way in which FCA cases are investigated. Prior to the legislative change, the CID was a rarely utilized tool, whereas today, the vast majority of FCA investigations are initiated by the government's issuance of a CID. So we thought we'd take some time today to talk a little bit about this powerful tool and discuss the risk associated with CIDs, as well as the best practices in responding to a CID issued by the Department of Justice. Our guest today is Nakechi Kanu, who is an associate in the firm's government contracts and FCA practices. Nakechi's practice focuses primarily on government and internal investigations, including various regulatory matters, suspension and debarment proceedings, and False Claims Act investigations and litigation. Nakechi is also a regular presenter on issues pertaining to the False Claims Act. Welcome to the podcast, Nakechi. Thanks, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here with you in MANA. Before we dive into our discussion regarding how to deal with civil investigative demands, MANA, do you want to start off by describing what a civil investigative demand is? Sure, Jason. As many of you know, a civil investigative demand, or a CID, is a pre-litigation investigative tool that the Department of Justice uses to obtain evidence of potential violations of the False Claims Act. So DOJ can use CIDs to obtain production of documents, electronically stored information, written interrogatory responses, and also sworn deposition testimony, including testimony from a corporate representative, much like a Rule 30b-6 depot. In other words, the government can get discovery about an FCA case before the litigation has even started. So the government typically uses CIDs to gather information they need to make a decision as to whether to file an FCA lawsuit or to intervene in a case filed by a relator. And a CID can only be used before the government files suit, because once the government files the suit, it needs to use the discovery mechanisms provided for in the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. The CIDs are typically served by an agent or delivered by certified mail to a company, or sometimes the Department of Justice will just send a letter informing the company of the investigation before issuing a CID. Thanks, Mona. As noted in the intro, the 2009 amendments to the FCA affected the way that they're authorized. Can you tell us a little bit more about that change? Yes, of course. Between the time of the 1986 amendments to the FCA in 2009, The use of the CID was generally limited to the more high-profile cases within the Department of Justice. Back then, the CID was a powerful tool, but one that was not utilized very often because the process of requesting and obtaining the CID was just so cumbersome that few main justice attorneys and AUSAs actually succeeded in obtaining them. And many DOJ attorneys would instead just rely on their client agencies, such as HHS, OIG, to issue subpoenas for documents. But this changed in 2009 when President Obama signed the Fraud Enforcement and Recovery Act, FIRA, which among its many changes to the FCA, authorized the Attorney General to delegate his authority to issue CIDs. So now, CIDs can be issued by the Director of the Civil Fraud Section or any one of the 93 U.S. Attorneys. The upshot here is that the number of CIDs issued every year has dramatically increased since the passage of FIRA. And I think the data really bears that out. 
For example, in fiscal year 2011, DOJ authorized almost 900 CIDs, which is more than 10 times the number issued in the two-year period prior to the 2009 amendments. And we know from a response to a FOIA request that we submitted that the civil fraud section at Maine Justice has authorized well over 400 CIDs in each of the past few years. And that doesn't even take into account the number of CIDs authorized by the 93 U.S. Attorney's Offices. On that point, it's worth noting that not all U.S. Attorney's Offices use their CID powers equally. Some have extensive experience in handling FCA investigations and litigation, whereas others are less active in authorizing CIDs. It's also worth noting that a number of states have their own laws modeled after the federal FCA, and a number of these statutes give the state attorney general the power to authorize CIDs. But let's now turn to how companies can respond when they receive a CID. Nikechi, can you start us off by highlighting what we can learn from a CID when it's first issued? Sure. Let's start with the significance of the office that issued the CID. If a CID is issued from a U.S. attorney's office, then the case is typically either delegated, meaning the U.S. attorney's office is making the key decisions, or the case is being monitored by Maine Justice, which means that the civil fraud section will be in the background, but will need to authorize the filing, closure, or settlement of the suit, and will be kept advised of developments by the AUSA responsible for the case. Now, if the CID comes from the civil fraud section, that is a good indication that an attorney from Maine Justice is going to play a more active role in the investigation. Now, moving on to what can be learned from the actual four corners of the CID itself. Because Section 3733A2 requires that the CID state the nature of the conduct under investigation, every CID essentially provides a preview of what is being investigated. Typically, a CID will just include a brief description of what is being investigated, but there are certainly some CIDs that are more descriptive than others. If there is a pending key TAM under seal, the CID recipient will not have the benefit of knowing the relator's specific allegations unless the government shares a redacted version of the complaint. But the document requests, the requested custodians, and interrogatories that are in the CID will provide additional insight into what is being investigated. Now, although receiving a CID can be dispiriting to in-house counsel and the company that is facing the prospect of significant discovery obligations, the receipt of the CID presents an opportunity for the recipient to perform its own internal investigation and to understand its potential risks and defenses. As we discussed earlier, the receipt of a CID means that there is a pending key TAM or the government is considering an affirmative action. In either instance, the government's decision to move forward is usually a key turning point in any FCA matter. So CID recipients will typically be well served by taking the opportunity to engage with the DOJ to put unhelpful documents in context, to shape the narrative and preview defenses in an effort to convince the government not to go forward. Now, some of you may know, a memo was released earlier known as the Granston Memo, in which the director of the fraud section set forth seven factors for DOJ attorneys to consider when deciding whether to exercise the department's authority to dismiss cases against the objections of the key TAM relator. In the aftermath of this memo, CID recipients may want to consider using their engagement with the government to advocate not only for a declination, but also for a dismissal. Thanks, Nakechi. It's good to be able to identify the useful information that can be gathered from a review of the CID, as you were just describing. But on the flip side, what are some of the primary risks of receiving a CID? Yeah, that's a good question. 
First, if there is a QTAM, under Section 3733A1D, the department is allowed to share information with QTAM relators if it is necessary to the investigation. Even if the government declines intervention, the information produced under the CID could be used by the relator. This information could be used to clear the 9B pleading threshold for alleging fraud, which would allow them to survive a motion to dismiss. Second, information can be shared with other federal, state, and local agencies, which can result in additional investigations, audits, or enforcement actions. Third, if there is a parallel investigation, there are additional considerations both for the company and or individuals. For example, if a corporate representative invokes his or her Fifth Amendment rights in a CID deposition, this can trigger an adverse inference in the civil proceeding. What steps should a company take in responding to a CID? So responding to CIDs can be time-consuming and expensive, but there are certain practical steps a company can take to reduce disruption and expenses associated with CID compliance. So upon receiving a CID, one of the first steps is to consult experienced outside counsel to develop a comprehensive response strategy. After engaging outside counsel, the next step is to identify employees who might have responsive material and to send legal holds to these employees to ensure that no documentation is destroyed or deleting. Now, before actually producing responsive material to the government, the company will obviously need to perform a detailed factual analysis of the documents obtained to understand its potential liability and exposure. Last, the company should assess the extent and time necessary to complete collection and production so that outside counsel can request an appropriate extension and narrow the scope of the request. Section 3733 requires the production of documents within 20 days, but the government typically agrees to extension and allows for a rolling production. So, Nikeji just mentioned seeking to narrow the scope of the request. I can't emphasize how important that can be in terms of the time, resources, and the money involved in dealing with a CID. It is critical to engage in a dialogue with the government to see how the company can provide the government what it needs in a timely but also cost-effective manner. And one way to do this is to describe in very specific terms the time and resources it would take to comply with the CID as currently drafted, and then propose to the government alternatives and discuss whether certain custodians, time periods, or specific search terms can be prioritized. You can also consider pitching a phased approach where information and documents are provided on a rolling basis to the government. Thanks, Mona. I agree. And I think it's important for protecting oneself against the breadth of the government's power in issuing CIDs. While there's not a lot of case law on the appropriate scope of CIDs, because most issues are resolved by agreement, case law holds that courts must enforce a CID where the information sought is reasonably relevant to the investigation and not unduly burdensome. So it stands to reason that seeking to narrow the scope of an overly broad CID request is a good means to limit the scope of this powerful tool. Yes, and the AUSAs are often up to it as well, as the conversation with government counsel can really help streamline and focus their investigation to the truly relevant issues. They don't want to waste their resources and time either. So in wrapping up today, Niketchi, let us know what the best practices are that companies should undertake in managing their communications with government counsel and conducting their own internal investigations to respond to a CID. So as I touched on a little bit earlier, 
it's important for companies to engage in early and regular dialogue with the government. From the outset, you want to establish credibility by demonstrating the company's good faith intention to comply with the CID. You want to be transparent about your document collection and the review methodology. Relatedly, you want to memorialize this process in writing in case there are any disputes down the road. If the need arises, you may need to discuss the need for a clawback agreement if privilege or confidential material is inadvertently produced. And you will likely need to interview witnesses with an appropriate upjine warning to gain a substantive understanding of the issues. And finally, you want to engage substantively with the government about the alleged FCA issues. Using the CID-related interactions is a good opportunity to educate the government on why the facts of the case do not support an FCA cause of action. That's all for this episode. We want to thank Nikechi for joining us today for our discussion of dealing with civil investigative demands. If you have any questions, Monica can be reached at 213-443-5563 and Jason at 202-624-2562. We'll see you next time on Let's Talk FCA. Let's Talk FCA is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash podcasts.